a mentor in Cleveland when I interned at my first church. Um, and we didn't know any of that. Uh, we started hanging out, and then I met this, I hung out with this guy. Uh, we started connecting here and there, and then he challenged me to look at Detroit. And what happened was it was him and two other guys, two other pastors, um, took me to an IHOP. We sat in the middle of an IHOP, and we pulled out a napkin. You that? And oh, yeah. We pulled out a napkin. And we drew out and said, well, where would you want us to plant? Where do you think there's a, there's, where there should be a church that's proclaiming the gospel? And uh, we drew it out. These guys drew out a map on a napkin. And we put a big circle next and said, we need to plant, you need to plant right here um, on the east side area, um, the whole area, the MAC area. And, and um, here we are today. Um, by God's grace, we are not exalting him. We are exalting Christ. Christ is our king. But the Lord tells us to honor men who are serious about King Jesus. This man has counseled uh, staff members in our count in our in our marriages. He's counseled us as um, a team. Uh, he's been on my board of advisors um, ever since we planted this church. He is an absolute dear friend, and we've stole half of our liturgy from Hope Church. So, <laughs> and we made it all up. We don't we don't know what we're doing. We just. So, guys, you're, you're, this is a huge treat for me because I have a guy that, uh, when I think of the men I respect most in Detroit, um, he is probably in the top three. Uh, this guy is unbelievable, and I praise God for him. Um, probably top, probably top, but I want to, I want you to say humble. So, all right. So, hey, let's pray for our brother Kevin, and um, let's enjoy the Lord together, okay? Amen. Um, as, we, as we pray, just know um, our series right now, we're going to be talking about Christology, and, uh, which is the study of Christ. Uh, so um, get excited about learning more about Jesus as you hopefully lead toward worship. Mm. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for, for Kev. Thank you for his friendship, uh, for him being a, a father figure uh, to us um, in the faith. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would bring glory to Christ through him, uh, that the gospel would be clear, and that the church would be edified. Yes. Um, you would be pleased. Yes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. In Jesus Amen. Name. Amen. 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 Love you, man. Love you so much. Bless you. First of all, let me say to Leon that uh, one of our brothers was telling me last week that down in the Jefferson Chalmers community, which is about five miles away, that he got a hose stolen as well. So I think it's uh, that's data that tells me we got a hose ring on the east side, man. There's there's obviously a market for hoses. I, I really I thought, really, who's buying these hoses, you know? I got a I got a few old ones I'll sell, but uh, somebody says, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." There's a market. So, also I think it's clear here. You know, you just look when you're we've ne never been with a community before. You, you you just look for data about what they're about. I think one thing is that's very clear to me is that your pastors spit on you when they preach because there is nobody sitting here in front of me. So. Um, that's probably a good thing because I, too, tend to spit when I preach. So um, all good preachers spit. It, it's just it's just one of the things we do. We can't help ourselves. And, and all, there you go. There you go. In all seriousness, um, Hope Community Church loves Mac Avenue Church. And I, I don't even really know if I have words to describe how encouraging it is as we're worshiping each week and as we're hanging out with human beings and as we're trying to follow Jesus Christ and trying to lay down our lives for the sake of others the way Jesus laid down his life for us. I don't know if you know how encouraging it is for us to know that you are here doing the same thing. I don't really have words. If I talk about it too much, I, I, I'll get um, emotional because... Uh, it can get very lonely. You know, there's 3,000 churches in Detroit. I ain't judging any of them, man. I'm nobody's judge. Um, one of the reasons I can counsel marriages is because I've screwed up so much in my marriage. You know, you, you make mistakes and, and then maybe you have something to share until you've hurt and been hurt. I don't know what you have to share. So I'm nobody's judge. But I will say that it's discouraging to me that we have a city that's been declared like several years in a row as the most miserable city in the United States with 3,000 churches. Are you kidding me? Who are we following? What kingdom are we about? So without making judgment, when I know of a community that's about the kingdom of God, 
and I know Mac Avenue is about the kingdom of God and about Jesus the King, you have no idea how encouraging it is. And, I, and just being here this morning tells me we've got to not just do Spring Hill Camp, we've got to do more together, more together, because we really are an adjacent community. So let, let's be open to what the Holy Spirit might want to do. If there's something we've got that you need, if something you've got that we need, let's please let the kingdom of God resource us as we try to touch folk. So John chapter 1, I'm going to read... Um, Two verses that will kind of serve as our, 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 our ground floor, and then we'll refer to several others. And you've been sitting for a while, so would it be all right if you stood while we read the, the, these, passage, these passages together? John 1, 1 and 14. Just get your blood flowing for a second. And, and i got to say, too, I should say this. Um, Eric... And Eric and Leon, um, you know, what, what I look for in a leader, someone that I could follow, and I could follow those three brothers and, and their wives. I want somebody that who they are in the dark is who they are in the light, you see. And for what it's worth, and you don't know me, so it may not be worth much, but I believe that about these three brothers. Who they are in the dark is who they are in the light. They're authentic. They have integrity. And if they've got some mess... They'll deal with it. They'll put it out there and take care of it. Those are the kind of leaders I want to follow. I think those are the kind of leaders you have. So this is what um, John, one of the apostles, says about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word, the Logos, was with God. And the Logos was God. And then drop to verse 14. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. There's a guy named Kenneth Scott Lauderette who was a, a famous historian of the last century. He was from Yale, and in his 1953 book called The History of Christianity, he said that measured by its effects... Christianity has become the most potent single force in the life of humankind. That's a powerful statement for any human being to make. If that's true, then it seems to me, and I think this is why you're doing this study uh, on Christology, on the study of Christ and who really was Christ, uh, that then, then if it's true that Christianity has been the most single potent force in the history of mankind, then the brother, the human being, or the being, whatever he was, that kind of forms the central core of that movement, probably the most important question of history is, who is that guy? And so these brothers are like launching us, uh, launching you all uh, into this question of who was and is Jesus of Nazareth by starting off with the issue of his deity, which is quite monumental. They're not, way, they're not like weaning you in. They're like going, they're starting here and then we'll come down from there. Um, can I just say that in 40 minutes, we can only scratch the surface. And if they say, oh, take 50, well, that really wouldn't matter because we can only scratch the surface in talking about Jesus um, being God. And I also like to say, just in all humility, I'm sitting here today talking about, I mean, first of all, it's a great privilege to talk about the one who is my love, who is my lover. Are you uncomfortable with that language? I hope you're not. I'm not trying to be crude or rude. He is. I don't even have words to tell you how much I love him. And how much if I didn't know he loved me, I would be in prison today because of some issues that I have from my childhood. I would be in a mental hospital today. And there's some great people in mental hospitals. I don't know of anybody who's trying to get into a mental hospital, though. I'm not dis dissing folk in mental hospitals, but not trying to go there. I would be there or, I, or I'd just be dead if I didn't know the love of Jesus Christ in my life. So it's a privilege for me to talk about my lover. On the other hand, I got to tell you, when I think of people like um, Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and Luther, why would you want to listen to me talk about the deity of Christ when you can read those brothers? On the other hand, if you've ever tried to read those brothers, they're kind of hard to read. So 
Um, I'm going to try to keep it real and and bring us something in 35 or 40 minutes about the deity of Christ. So um, let's start with number one. And I'm, I'm going to pro- hopefully I'm going to get in a rhythm here of of this deal. There's the title. And. There we go. Here is number one. In terms of Jesus, deity and humanity. I just want to say from the outset, there is an element, if you don't already know this, there's an element of deep mystery. Now, look, I'm a Westerner. By living, by virtue of living in the United States, we're all Westerners. And in the Western world, in the Western church, we love firm categories and we love rigorous, clear statements of our belief systems. I love it. I know it. I get it. And I'm just saying that if we're going to be honest about this, it took the church of Jesus Christ 450 years and three major church councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Constantinople in 381 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, plus endless debate, prayer, controversy, discussion before finally coming up with our creedal statements that have endured the test of time and have become orthodox statements about the person of Christ in terms of his deity and humanity. It took the church 450 years to develop those statements. So I got to say that 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 this is a really deep subject. Those folk were were great thinkers. Like I said, I I'm a fairly smart guy. I've got a master's degree, graduated with you know honors and all of that. I can't even understand sometimes when I read the Eastern Church Fathers. I'm like, what are they trying to say to me, man? Even translated it in English, I read several different translations. I don't know what they're talking about. So we're talking some really smart folk that took 450 years to come up with the church's understanding that has become orthodox about who Jesus was in terms of his deity and his humanity. And even then, I just want to show you real quick, in terms of two of our most famous creeds, the first one being the um, Nicene Creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. I want you to see... There we go. Look at this. We believe in... We believe in one God. You know what I love, though? This is exactly how it goes at Hope Community Church. And I always think like we're doing something wrong, but maybe not. Maybe it's just the devil is always in the wires. All right. All right. Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Now look at the next line. And in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. That was not instituted in the church until 325 A.D. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, etc., etc. Now, let's look at another creed that is a bit more ancient. That's just the rest of the Nicene Creed. Let's look at another creed called the... Apostles' Creed. Nicene Creed goes on and on and on, as you can see. Here's the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now notice what it says about Jesus Christ, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, watch this. Remember how the Nicene Creed said, uh, very God of very God? This is a more ancient creed that got really solidified in about the 8th century. It started in about the 2nd century, solidified in the 8th century, but it really didn't get changed that much. Look at what this creed says about Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, his, son, his only Son, our Lord, says nothing about him being God. It says he was Lord, which some people would take to mean that he was God. But the point is, they don't make it as explicit as as the Nicene Creed, which is not to say that we don't believe Jesus was God. I'm just saying in terms of even our ancient creeds, notice the diversity, notice the difference as they tried to wrestle with the personhood of this one named Jesus of Nazareth. His creeds. It'd be nice if we, there, there we go. That'll be coming next. Let me just give you two other illustrations. There was a brother named Nestorius who was uh, one of the uh, church uh, fathers, shall we say, in, in this period of time. In fact, he became the uh, patriarch of Constantinople in 428 A.D. 
He was a Syrian monk who, I got to tell you, never doubted the deity of Jesus Christ. But what he struggled with was how his deity and his humanity went together in the same person, this, this person named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want to read you a statement of what he believed. It says that Nestorius believed that no union between the human and the divine was possible. If such a union of human and divine occurred, Nestorius believed that Christ could not truly be consubstantial or totally one with God or consubstantial with human beings because he would grow, mature, suffer and die, which God can't do, and also would possess the power of God that would separate him from being equal to humans. So what Nestorius struggled with was, my brothers and sisters, was having God and man in the same body. He struggled with the fact that if somehow the two natures uh, fused, then all of a sudden you've got a man who is all powerful, which only God can be, or you've got God who is dying, which God can't do, only man can do. Now, are you tracking with Nestorius? I'm like, Nestorius would be my homeboy. I mean, I would be with him. I would be ha hanging out with him. I'd invite him to preach at my church. Nestorius was declared a heretic in 431 A.D. Because he was trying to sort out what here in the 21st century, as I share this with you, you're going, yeah, that makes sense. I can understand why he wanted to keep the natures separate. Then all of a sudden people started saying to him, so you've got two separate beings in the one Jesus. And so they declared him a heretic. I only say this to illustrate again how mysterious this subject is. Let's not let's not get all up on our high horse and act like when we get to the end of our series at MacAv, we'll really understand it all. We'll really get it. And all we have to do is explain it to others. Are you kidding me? Let me give you one other illustration. My little girl, Andrea, who is now 29 and the mother of. My grandbaby, who is the one of the loves of my life, um, when she was four, we were sitting in the car. I just dropped off one of my elders at his home. And I said to my elder, I said, see you later, brother. This would have been in 1987. And she looked up at me you know, with her little seatbelt on in the front seat. She looked up at me and she said, Daddy, he's not your brother. And I said, well, you see, sweetie, when we both believe in Jesus, we become brothers and sisters together. So in one sense, he is my brother, even though he's not like Uncle Jeff, who is my physical brother. And my little girl looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, Daddy. Now, I had never led her uh, to some kind of bench where she could kneel and pray some kind of scripted prayer. She just had seen her mommy and daddy rehearse the good news, which is that Jesus is the deliverer. That's the good news, right? Not Jesus plus the Nicene Creed, as the Nicene Creed understands him as a deliverer. You understand where I'm, where I'm going with this? My daughter didn't know if Jesus was God, didn't know if he was man, didn't know if he was a Martian. All she knew is that her daddy said Jesus could deliver her from her sin. So I'm even going to go as far as to say that we're going to be in flux. I mean, I'm going to conclude today just so that Eric and the other brothers know that they didn't bring a heretic in here to teach today. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he is God. I'm just saying what, what I'm called to proclaim is Jesus, the deliverer, the savior, the forgiver, the creator. And then we can sort out how to work on all of these issues about his two natures and whatever until we go home and see him face to face. You see, your little your, your child does not have to understand the whole deity humanity thing to believe that Jesus is the deliverer. The gospel is Jesus saves Jesus saves, And of course, derivative to that is, well, why? Why can he save? Well, because he's God. That's why he can save. But that comes second. All right. That's number one. Number two. There is no doubt, having said that there's a whole lot of mystery, there's no doubt that the authors of the New Testament saw Jesus as much more than simply a really good and very powerful man. There is no question. Otherwise, there'd be no debate. Everybody, even the most liberal of scholars, believe that the authors of the New Testament are seeing Jesus as much more than simply a really good and very powerful man. The question is... The question is, the question is, how much more powerful 
than just a very good and powerful man. Now, I'm going to say something. Don't get shattered by this. Just stay with me. The phrase, having said that they say a lot about Jesus, he's much more than just a good and powerful man. The phrase, Jesus is God, never occurs in the New Testament. Never does. Now, why? I think these are the reasons. Come on. There you go. The first reason is, is because Judaism is monotheistic. Think about this. Jesus was a Jew. He was speaking to Jews about the kingdom of the Jewish God, the God of the universe, yes, but the Jewish God. And remember the great Shema of Israel. It's called the Shema because the word here is the Hebrew word Shema. And the, and the Shema goes, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That The Shema is the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed of the Old Testament Jewish a belief system. And so their key core belief is that there is one God. What's going on all over the ancient world? Everybody's got a system with about a million gods. And Judaism comes in and says, no, there's only one God. Not just one God that's higher than all the other gods. There's only one God. Can you imagine a prophet of that one God who believes in the Shema, who is a rabbi teaching Torah as Jesus taught Torah? Maybe a new spin on Torah, but he taught Torah. Coming in and saying, oh, by the way, I just need to tell you, I'm God. It's not going to happen. There would be no place for that kind of a statement made so blatantly to land in the Jewish community. They would have strung him up and drawn and quartered him and been done with him in about a hot 30 seconds. Now, second reason why this phrase never occurs is because this good news was being delivered to an ancient world, again, that was full of polytheistic belief. And so what the authors never wanted to be guilty of is making any of their polytheistic neighbors thinking that this Jewish sect that came to be called Christianity really believes in like three different gods. It would be too easy to go there if the authors would have simply said, Jesus is God. And so it's never stated just like that. So when those who were with Jesus began to experience Jesus, listen to Jesus, be blown away by Jesus and later research and write about Jesus, they had to come up with a way to describe this one who was, quite frankly, indescribable. I'm thinking of that. That point in Mark chapter 4 where he stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves. And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now, having given the caveat that the, the phrase Jesus is God is never used in the New Testament. Let me go on to say this. There are, however, some very strong statements in the Gospels, as the authors describe Jesus, that give us clues as to what they came to believe about his person. Let's kind of run through a few of these. All right? We can't spend long on any of them, but I want to give you kind of an overview, at least as I understand it. The first one uh, uh, we've already read, and that is in John's Gospel, we've got John chapter 1, verse 1. And so... Listen to how John states this. In the beginning was the Word or the Logos. Now, let me just say this about the Logos. And my brothers who, sisters here who have the same degree I have, hopefully you will not, you know, take me out and tell me I've gotten too colloquial with this. But the Logos to the Greek meant something like the unifying universal principle. To the Greek mind, when you talk about the Logos, man, it was like it was kind of undefined, but it was all up there. It was almost like the air that we breathe. That's the Logos. It's just the unifying eternal principle to the Jew. It meant basically the divine wisdom that sometimes got personified. All right. Proverbs eight, the divine wisdom is personified. The Logos there in Proverbs eight. Loosely. I think to both Jew and Greek, the word logos meant something like the force. And so John 
took this word from uh, Jewish theology and philosophy. Philo, a great uh, uh, Jewish philosopher, used the term the Lagos all the time, well known in that era. And that the Greeks used and pulled it in and said, I'm going to, can you imagine how John was writing to this dual audience? And he pulls in a term that's undefined for them. And he says, I'm going to tell you who the Logos is. I'm going to tell you who the force is. And he says, in the beginning, the Logos, first of all, he says, in verse 14, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, obviously referring to this one named Jesus of Nazareth. So before he says anything else, you already know in John's gospel, Jesus is like, again, way up there. If he's saying he is the Logos, he's way up there. Whatever else he says, he's way up above normal humanity. Then he says, the Logos in the beginning was the Logos, which means he was preexistent. And in fact, when you hear the words in the beginning, what passage of Scripture does it bring to your mind in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 1. So he's taking the Logos, the one who became flesh, Jesus, at least all the way back to Genesis 1. And most commentators think, think he wasn't just talking about a time in history. He's talking about something qualitative, like God the Father lives in the eternal beginning, the eternal now. So this author was saying not only did the Logos, who is Jesus of Nazareth, he was in the beginning, he was preexistent. He existed a long time before he came out of Mary, is what the author is saying. Then he says, he not only was with God, he says the Logos was God. Now, that's the closest statement in the entire New Testament for saying Jesus is God. But you notice he removes it once by calling it the Logos. And then he does something else grammatically here that removes it one more time. In the Greek text, when it says the Logos was with God, the word logos has the definite article, and I'm not trying to get too, you know, overwhelming here, but just so you know, it has the definite article, which basically means in the beginning, the logos was with the one and only God, the God of the Shema. Then he says later, and the logos was God. He removes the definite article. Which in some way to the to the person that read Greek would differentiate the Logos from the Ha Theos, the one God of Israel, the true God. It would differentiate in a mysterious way the Logos from that God. He's not the same as that God. And yet he still says he's God Theos. I'm going to say this is a subtle way in which the author prepares us for Trinitarian theology that. He's saying the Logos was equal in essence to God, but was not the same person as God the Father. But again, this is couched in the mystery of the Greek language and in this term Logos that comes from these two areas of life, the Jewish life and the Greek life. Now, before I move on, can I just say, before you go, well, that's all I need, man. I got John 1, 1, man. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, so I know He's God. Look, this is where it gets mysterious. You've got to couch that very strong phrase with the fact that in John, Jesus also says, and I'm, I'm just going to read these verses off to you. In John 14, 28, he says, my father is greater than I. Well, if he's in essence God, then how can God the father be greater than God? The, I mean, I'm not going to unpack that with you, but you see the mystery? You see the mystery? Do you feel the mystery? John 17, 3, Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer, you, Father, are the one true and only God. Another piece of the ministry. He talked, Jesus talks to God the Father. Do you know that in terms of talking to God, Jesus openly talks to God the Father more in John than all the other Gospels combined. He calls God Father 120 times. You know how I know? I looked them all up, counted every one of them. Twenty five of those times he says, my father. And so in a sense, again, this is the mystery. He's equal with God, but he's not God, the father, to the extent that he has a relationship with God, the father, even though John has already said the Logos is theos. And then, of course, he says in John, the father sent me. I only do what the father tells me to do. You can see how there's mystery about this, even in this gospel that has the strongest statement about Christ's deity 
of all the writings in the New Testament. So let's do a couple of more. Are you totally confused yet? Or are you tracking with me? Come on. Come on, man. Help me. Help me. Help. There we go. John 8.58. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to John 8.58. Just give you a real brief. This is a place where Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders. Or actually, they're arguing with him. And they're trying to say, hey, man, Abraham's our father. We got it going on. We're, you know, we're with the true God. Who are you with? And notice what Jesus says in 858. He doesn't say I'm God. But what he does say is most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was. I am. Which linked with John 1, 1 again affirms his preexistence because he's saying to Abraham who lived in what? 3000 B.C. He's saying I was before him. Well, yeah, but how could he be sitting here right now? So he's making a strong statement of his own preexistence. But then he uses the Greek phrase, ego, a me. Before Abraham was, I am. Which every Jew that was listening to him who knew Torah would have immediately thought of Exodus 3. When Moses is standing on holy ground and the burning bush speaks and says, go to Israel and tell them that I have sent you to lead them out of bondage. And Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? And the burning bush says, tell them I am is sending you. So you notice how subtle Jesus is. He doesn't say, by the way, I'd like to announce to you today that I'm God. And yet, what he says here in his veiled way, I'm pre-existent and before Abraham was a go, a me. It's shouting the deity of Christ without offending Jewish sensibilities. Well, it does offend Jewish sensibilities, but without uh, explicitly offending Jewish or Greek sensibilities in terms of their monotheism or their polytheism. And yet you notice in this text, the Jews get what he's saying and they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Now look at John chapter 10, verse 30. We're going to keep moving here quickly. Another discussion at the end of the Good Shepherd passage. And Jesus uh, says in verse 30 of John 10, I and my Father are one. And the commentators have debated, well, does he mean like we're on the same team, the Father and the Son, or we've got the same goals? Here's what I can tell you. What I can tell you is that that uh, in verse 33, the Jews obviously didn't think that he was saying we're on the same team or the father and I have the same goals. They say we got stones again. You're blaspheming because you're making yourself God. Jesus was saying without saying I am God. He's saying the father and I are of such a unity. <laughs> we are so unified that. Really, really. And he doesn't even fill in the blank. The Jews filled in the blank by saying, we know what you're saying. You're saying that you're God and they picked up stones to stone him. And then look at John 20, 28. We can't linger long on any of these passages. John 20, 28. You've got this brother called Doubting Thomas. I wonder why this particular program keeps going back up. You know what I mean? Because I don't know anything about computers. I turn them on. I send some emails and I turn them off. This is. <laughs> John 20, 28. Now watch this again. John doesn't say explicitly Jesus is God. What does he do? He tells a story about a guy who has all kinds of doubts. By the way, lest you criticize doubting Thomas, look up Thomas in the other references in the gospel to him. When, when Jesus was getting ready to go to Jerusalem to die, all the other apostles were like, you know, the only guy who said, let's go. It's our obligation. This is our master. Thomas. So Thomas was just a deep thinker. He was very philosophical and he's really not tracking with the whole Jesus died thing. And he's asking questions like the one brother who put in a prayer request or sister put in a prayer request today and said, today I had this week, I had such a tough week. I started to doubt my faith. Well, you've got an apostle who is your patron saint 
Because Thomas had had more than a bad week. He had left everything believing that the kingdom of God was coming and was going to destroy Rome. And all the promises of Isaiah about the lion and the lamb lying down together, it was going to happen right there. And he was going to be part of the apostolate, the twelve thrones of Israel that were going to rule in that new kingdom. And now the king is dead? Lest we judge him. Let's put ourselves in his in his shoes. I think this guy was just deep. And I think he said, I, I don't know, man. And then when he heard that he was resurrected, he said... I've heard rumors before, man. There's rumors all over Israel about all kinds of Messiah figures. I don't know. I want to see him. I want to touch him. And you, you notice when Jesus comes, he never rebukes him. But when Thomas sees him and Jesus says, here, touch me, you notice he never touches him. He never actually puts his fingers in his side and in his hands. He simply falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. You know what I think? First, I think John, this is what in literary circles is called an inclusio. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. John 1 1, John 20 28, he has a key player in his gospel falling down on his knees and saying, My Lord and my God. You can tell what John's trying to get at in his gospel, okay? But notice he doesn't say, and in conclusion, I want all my readers, even in the 21st century, to note. Jesus is God. I think he's more saying something like this. If you will walk with him, if you will observe him closely, if you will let him touch your life, if you will interact with him, if you will take even your doubts to him, if you will lay your life down before him and look at him carefully, you too will come to the conclusion that Thomas came to that he indeed is God. Isn't that good stuff? In fact, N.T. Wright, who is truly becoming a patron saint of a couple of us here. Come on, N.T. There we go. John, this is what N.T. Wright says in his little book, which I encourage you. As you're going through this study of Jesus, following Jesus, it's Jesus in John, Jesus in Colossians, Jesus in Revelation. They're sermons of N.T. Wright. They're very readable, very deep. He says... John invites us to be still and know, to look into the human face of Jesus of Nazareth until the awesome knowledge comes over us, wave upon terrifying wave, that we are looking into the human face of the living God. John never says Jesus is God, but you get to the end of John and you, 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 you just can't deny that indeed he is. God. A little bit different, isn't it, from when we were in seminary and you took a course in Christology and they just said, okay, here's all the verses. Let's exegete them. It's just a little bit different. John is inviting us into relationship. He's saying, you, you, you compare him to others and come get with him. Before you even know what you believe about him, I will tell you by the end of the journey, you will be falling on your face too, saying, my Lord and my God. Isn't that deep? Now, just a couple more passages. I, I, I want to respect our time, but a couple more passages to give you a little bit more of a New Testament overview. You got, John, oh, you got the apostolic letters. So go to Colossians 1.15 real quickly. This is now a follower of Jesus who only met him once on the Damascus Road, all right? So Paul is... He wasn't one of the twelve. He didn't walk for three years with him. But his encounter with him leads him to say this about Jesus in Colossians 1.15. I'm not even going to get into the context because of time, but he says this Jesus is the image. The image. The Greek word is icon, from which we get the word icon, the the statues that you'll see in certain uh, liturgical churches. He is the very icon of the invisible God. Now, listen, the word icon does not mean copy. There is a Greek word for copy. And if you ask me today, after six years of Greek, what that Greek word is, I could not tell you. I'd have to look it up. But I know there is a Greek word for copy, and it's not icon. Listen to what... The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says about the word icon. You're going to love this. Again, because Paul's not explicitly saying Jesus is God, but notice what he's saying and what he's saying. He says, icon is not a feeble copy, 
Rather, it implies the illumination of the object's inner core and essence. Listen to this. The icon or the icon has a share in the reality. Indeed, it is the reality, unquote. So he is saying, Paul is saying, when Jesus was walking around in the first century. Let me give you this illustration. If I would paint a painting of my brother Eric. And somebody might say, let's say I was a really good artist, which I'm a stick figure guy. I'm not a good artist. I have a daughter who's a great artist, not me. But if I was a good artist and I could draw a picture of Eric and you would look at that picture and go, you know, how when you're at some art museums, you know, like the eyes follow you. Have you ever, have you ever done that? And you walk over here and he's still looking at me. What if I was so good that I could paint a picture of Eric that when you walked in, you'd say, my Lord, that's like a photograph, man. That would be the Greek word for copy. What if I went up to the canvas and took my pocket knife out and I scraped a little of the paint and I put it under a microscope and unbelievably, there's DNA there. And guess what? It's Eric's DNA. Now we've got icon. We've got icon. You, you understand? Paul never says Jesus is God. He, he's a Jew. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Pharisee. He doesn't want to offend the monotheistic sensibilities. He also doesn't want to make it look like he's polytheistic. He's in Colossae. For, he's writing to Colossae. Man, there's, there's Greek and Roman gods everywhere. But he says Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. You take Jesus' DNA. He's got God in him. Not just God in him. His DNA is God's DNA. Now look at this passage. Here's another biggie. I prayed for patience this morning, but I, I didn't know it was going to come through a, a PowerPoint. There we go. Hebrews 1 3. Look over at Hebrews 1 3. This is another. Now, this author, we don't even know who wrote this book. Some scholars think Barnabas might have written it. I, I kind of like Barnabas for this for this letter. But the author says in verse one, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. All right. Now we're in the house. We're talking about Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Nothing explicitly. You could make a case for he's saying he's God because God's the creator. But, you know, Jesus could have been just the instrument. But look what he says next. Who being the brightness of his glory, the image here is of the sun and the rays of the sun. The glory here is the glory of God and the brightness of his glory is like the rays of the glory of the glory of God. And so just like if I said to you, tell me the difference between the rays of the sun and the sun. Could you tell me? Not really. In fact, you'd say they're made up of the very same essence, even though as we look at them, the rays obviously emanate from that thing, which is the sun. That's what the you know, sometimes we look at these biblical authors and they're going, you know, they're just not very smart. Are you kidding me? This is brilliant. This is brilliant. How dare we act like we got it all together just because we, you know, discovered antibiotics or we went to the moon. These are some very smart folk who are coming up with some really, really good imagery that I couldn't have come up with. Now, notice what else he says. In the next line, he says, and he's the express image of God's person. The illustration here is of back in the day, they would have a uh, to make a coin. You would have um, the die that had the image of the emperor or whoever that would go down into the metal and, and impress perfectly the image that was on the die. That's the image that the author is using here. Jesus is the express image, the absolute exact image of the God who imprinted his DNA and his personage upon him. Without saying explicitly Jesus is God, deity is being shouted from these passages about Jesus of Nazareth. And then finally, let me just say a word about the synoptic Gospels. This is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There we go. 
And I think I think this is another quote or here's some passages, some images. But I want to give you a quote by. um, Not N.T. Wright, but by Raymond Brown, who is a, a wonderful Roman Catholic commentator, maybe the best commentator in the Gospel of John. Look at what he says. The way that most of the New Testament passages approach the question of the deity of Jesus was not through the title God. We've kind of already explained that and for the reasons for which we explained. But by describing his activities in the same way as it described the father's activities. So, for example, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, you don't find anywhere near the explicit um, statements, situations that you find in the Gospel of John about the deity of Christ. They use terms like son of God, son of man and Messiah, which, by the way, none of them in and of themselves equal God. They can be many other things, but they don't necessarily equal God just alone in terms of the terminology and the lexicography. But what these gospel authors do over and over again is depict, now get this, Jesus doing those things that according to the Old Testament, only God could and would do. The synoptic Gospels don't really say much explicitly about Jesus being God, even as explicitly as the Gospel of John. But over and over, they depict Jesus Doing and saying things that the Old Testament suggests only God could and would do. I want to put these verses back up if I can. Forget it. Listen, Mark chapter two. Jesus heals the paralytic. But he declares that the man's sins are forgiven. Remember what the cry was from the Pharisees? Blasphemy. Why? Because the old anybody that knew the Old Testament knew that only God could forgive sins. And his brother's taking this upon himself. Are you kidding me? Mark chapter four, power over nature. The Old Testament declared over and over again that the only one who had power over nature was God. But here Jesus is saying to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, are you kidding me? There's no prophet in his right mind on the planet in that day that would have said this. He said, I've not come to destroy the law. I have come in my person. I get this to fulfill Torah. If I would have heard him say that, I would have been if I was a Torah studying Jew, I would have jumped out of the way because the lightning bolt was going to come. He's saying in his person, Torah, the very heartbeat of God. The God of the Shema was being fulfilled. Only someone that thought he was way more than just a man. Only someone who was trying to take the place of God would make a statement like that. So Matthew never says Jesus is God, but he has Jesus saying, I've come to fulfill the Torah. Luke 14, he says, and no prophet ever said that. Jeremiah never said this. Ezekiel never said this. Malachi never said this. Isaiah never said this. John the Baptist never said this. John the Baptist said, one is coming whose very shoelaces I am not worthy to unlatch. This is the only prophet who ever said anything like this. I want you to pick up your cross. I want you to deny yourself. I want you to follow me, implying that this new thing that God was doing was going to be centered in him. Much like the Old Testament Jew knew that everything their life was about was centered in the one true God of the Shema. I mean, you've got to deal with this, even though he doesn't say Jesus is God because of the Jewish sensibilities and the polytheistic issue. What's Jesus trying to say, man? In fact, one of my favorite passages that my mentor, I wish I could meet him, N.T. Wright, has referred me to. You know how much the family was valued in Israel. Do you think we value the family in America? And yet when the brother said to him, you know, my dad just passed. I've got to go bury him. What did Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me. I think he was basically saying without saying it, because God is on the scene. And you know what? Things will have to take care of themselves because the kingdom is coming. You've got to get with it right now. 
And then maybe most powerfully, almost done, when Jesus, and I'm just new to this interpretation of what Jesus did when he came to Jerusalem at the end. See if this sets with you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, Zion, and not only did he predict the destruction of the temple, which was what? It was where God lived. He predicted the destruction of the temple and then predicted that that temple, in a very strange metaphor, would be raised up in three days. And of course, the gospel commentators say he was talking about his own body. Do you see what he's doing? Predicting the destruction of the temple, saying that the, the present worshipers of God have left him. And by the way, there's a new temple in town. A new temple. He said it will be raised up in three days and this one will be destroyed. What do you think he was saying? I think he was saying from now on, the temple will not be about a building with an inner court, a holy of holies where God will dwell. God now. Well, you're looking at the new temple. You're looking at the arm of Yahweh who has come to lead you out into the new exodus. You now are looking at the Shekinah cloud of glory. You're now looking at the pillar of fire. What was then was then. Now, for us now, I am the one who has come to do only that which God has said he could do. Draw your own conclusions. I think he was clearly saying without saying it that he was Israel's God come to deliver them into this thing called the kingdom. In fact, ah, look, look at this quote. This is again from N.T. Wright. Jesus' prophetic vocation included within it the vocation to enact symbolically the return of Yahweh to Zion. His messianic vocation included within it the vocation to attempt certain tasks, which according to Scripture, Yahweh had reserved for himself. Now notice the next part of this quote. He would take upon himself the role of messianic shepherd, knowing that Yahweh had claimed this role as his own. He would perform the saving task which Yahweh had said he alone could achieve. He would do what no messenger, no angel, but only the arm of Yahweh, the presence of Israel's God, could accomplish. As part of his human vocation, he believed he had to do and be for Israel and the world that which, according to Scripture, only Yahweh himself could do and be. And so, my brothers and sisters, I'm not Thomas Aquinas, I'm, I'm just a Kevin human being from down the block that's got all kinds of stuff that I battle with just like you do. But I love him. I love him. And I know he loves me. This is what I have concluded. Sorry, somebody did a really good job of getting that quote. This is what I've concluded. Without question, the New Testament authors describe Jesus of Nazareth both in action, in purpose, in essence, and in mystery as God the Son. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Now, one last thing I'd like to maybe um, just share with you. I've been debating all week long about sharing this, but I, I think maybe I should because you could go out of here saying, okay, so this means to me in my day-to-day -day life, what? And I think the traditional answer is what we alluded to earlier, and that is that if Jesus is God, my brothers and sisters, this means he has the power to save and deliver us from the power and the penalty and even the presence of sin. That when we call upon his name, he is there to answer. Uh, in my marriage. And you don't know me well enough to, to get this raw and naked in front of you, but I'll, I'll just say, I guess if we're going to be tight, you've you got to start by trying to go back to Genesis 2 before the fall and, go, and try to be naked and not ashamed. So let me just tell you that when I got married, we were supposed to be Barbie and Ken. 
it was just kind of the way we were kind of configured. And, and my wife still looks like Barbie. Now I look like I don't know what I look like, but I've had twice people come up and say, so second marriage for you, which, you know, the implication is I've, I've kind of married this young lady. This old man has like married. It's really it's hard. It's hard. And then he calls me the he calls me the patriarch. I don't know. I don't know what God's trying to say to me. I know, I know he was respecting me, but six months into Barbie and Ken's marriage. Ken lost his mind and pushed Barbie all the way across the room in that little mobile home. And I'm, I'm ashamed of that to this day. It's the only time I ever touch my wife. I'm ashamed of it to this day. A real man never touches a woman in violence of any kind. I don't care what she does. And if you know my wife, if you ever met her, she's she's something else is all I have to say. Uh, to be married to me, she'd have to be. Um, that night, I think I think I had been I've been going all seminary on her and saying, you know what? Uh, this and that. And then she at some point had had cussed at me. I think she had said, damn. And I said, we don't swear in this house. And she was like, damn, damn, damn. I mean, that's my wife. All right. So I'm, I'm not saying that she didn't get my business a little bit. But what came out of me at that point really had nothing to do with that moment. It was like years of abuse in my background that I really wasn't even cognizant of. And I threw her across the room. And that, um, that night, my wife said, I'm out, man. I was put up with this. And indeed, she was correct. She didn't. She needed to at least separate to get herself safe. And we wept for, I, I remember, uh, it's 34, four and a half years ago now. We wept for like two, two hours each. And then, when we didn't know what else to do, we remembered our covenant vows. We remembered saying that the God who has kept covenant with us in Jesus, who kept covenant by going all the way to the cross, would be there when we needed him with power. And we knelt in that little mobile home, green and orange shag carpet, matching green and orange couch. You don't forget something like that. <laughs> this, was the, this was the 70s, my brothers and sisters. It was a strange time. Buried our heads and we cried out to Jesus of Nazareth, who was not just a good and powerful man. He was God. And he met us there. Did we have some work to do? Heck yes. That healing has been 35 years in the making. I'll tell you, I never touched her again. Got some counseling. She went to some counseling, went to the elders, had them anoint me. Got in some community with some other brothers because you don't do that kind of healing alone. God works in his community. He had a community around himself, for heaven's sakes. No Lone Ranger believers. The, the body of Christ, we're called the body of Jesus for a reason. That Jesus, who is God, is in the body healing. And so I can just tell you, he didn't let us down. He's God. He can do what needs to be done in our lives. But the other thing is this. And, and do you care if I just show you these two little pictures? Not to make this about me, but that's me. I know it looks like me now, but it really isn't. It's it's I'm just it's, it. That's me about 30 years ago, 25 years ago with my little girl, Leanne, who is now a therapist out in, in Denver, Colorado. And do you, do you see how she's safe in my arms to, to her? I was like God, I will tell you, as her daddy, which, by the way, daddies and mommies don't ever forget that in the Shema, it says, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart. Lord, our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Get this into the hearts of your children. If there's one thing they got to know growing up. It may not be a reading, a writing, and arithmetic. They have to know that God loves them because of the way we love them. So there she was in my arms, safe, serene. Do you notice, by the way, this other girl out here on the side? I can almost see Luke 15, the prodigal son, the parable, the older brother kind of looking in. That's my oldest daughter there. It looks almost like she's saying, I want I want to be in on that. Now, this when I saw this picture again the other day, I said to myself, one of the other things about Jesus being God is the fact that the way he connects with us in the scripture is that he wants not just to be this powerful being that can give us deliverance when we need it. He wants to be he's showing us a father. And even in himself, he wants to be the kind of God that draws us near in intimacy and in healing and in rest. 
Jesus, who is God, is the one who said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I know for a fact, as good of a community as this is, we're all human. We're just we got baggage. Some of us have for a long time lived like we're the person out there. I got to tell you, if nothing else happens in your journey today, can I tell you that this Jesus, who is God, wants you to be up in here. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, however long your struggle has been, he loves you so much. He taught us to call God Abba, Father, Daddy, Dada. Do you know him like that? Or, or, or is sometimes, because we're, we're all trying to follow him into the battle, sometimes is it like when we see him coming, we know he's God and we know he has power, but it's like, I don't know how much more. Can I just tell you that what he wants to do with us first is draw us there and to secure us in his godlike arms so that then, in love and security, he can send us out there. I'll just show you one more shot. There it is. Um, that's my grandbaby. We were just coming back at the zoo. You know, the zoo is like, whoever laid this thing out, man, ought to be shot. And there, there's, there's so many miles. You, can, you I think there's some animals down there about four miles away. I mean, that's how it is. Once you get there, it's fine. But we were coming back. I was cramping up and that little baby was so tired and she just. What if I told you today that your heavenly father, and I know this because Jesus, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. What if I told you that the father's greatest moment of his day is when you lay your head on his chest like that? You and I sometimes can begin to think that the greatest moment of his day is when he sends us out. We're going now. And we've got our orders and we're going to accomplish them. Look, I'm not saying that's not an important moment of the day. It's obviously an important moment of the day if we're fighting a battle that is spiritual, that the humans' lives rest upon. But can I tell you, look, let me just close it like this. If this grandbaby grows up and gets to be like 16 and she's staying with me one summer, and by that time... I'm like walking around like this and I can hardly get from one room to the other. And I've got a room to paint. And that grandbaby loves me enough to say, Grandpa, I'd be glad to paint that room. And I'll sit back in my chair with my cane and go, look at my granddaughter, paint that room for her grandfather. She loves me that much. Man, that is that's a great day. We have that kind of a relationship that she could be off with anybody. And she's cute to be off with all these boys and she's painting a room for her grandfather. It would be a great day, but can I tell you this? This is the greatest day of a father or a grandfather's life right here. Yeah, he loves it, my brothers and sisters, when you love him enough to follow him. But can I tell you, his greatest moment is when you trust him as Lord and God enough to realize he's got stuff under control. You can lay your head on his chest. You can rest. You can bring your burden you can bring your labor. He, Jesus, who is God, will give you rest and fill you up with his love. And to be filled with his love is to be filled with all the fullness of God. And then full, he'll send you out to paint the room that he wants you to paint for his glory. And so my father... I know, I know because we're all human here today. From my brother pastors, my sister church leaders, all the way down to folks who are, are, are just hanging here today. Maybe walked in for the first time. There's a whole lot. The prayer requests show it, Lord. A whole lot of wound in this room. The enemy never stops. He never sleeps. He knows our Achilles heel. He knows our weaknesses. He knows where we're most weary. He knows where we're most vulnerable. My father, father who, who calls himself our Abba, daddy, who sent us Jesus, God in the flesh, 
Would you help us today, Lord, at Hope Community Church and at Mac Avenue Church? You've called us to some wonderful stuff. You've called us to some groundbreaking ministry. You've called us to love in ways that that really require you to be in us and through us. And I thank you for that. We thank you for that. We honor you for that. We're not bored, Lord. We're never bored. But, oh, my father, would you give courage in this house today and even down at Hope? To be okay. In fact, not just okay. Could we revel in the fact that because Jesus is God, He wants us to put upon Himself our pain, our wound. He called Himself man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He said He came to bear our sins and our iniquities as God in the flesh. Would you help us today, Father, to take our deepest secrets our most incredibly horrifying burdens. Would you help us, Father, to get off the fast track just for a hot second and to lay our heads upon His chest and to know that He loves it. He doesn't just tolerate it. He glories in it because we are His sons and daughters. He loves us with all of His heart when we rest in Him and take our mess to Him. It is the best moment of His day. It is the best moment of His life. Give us courage, Father, to rest in the Jesus who is God. I pray in His sweet and precious name. Amen.